Well, thank you. Uh, it's a joy and privilege uh, and an honor to uh, be asked uh, to speak at this gathering uh, this evening. And though I am no longer uh, PCA and have defected to the uh, ARPs, uh, it is good to be back with my brothers and sisters. And uh, I have been assigned a text, and it's Romans 8 and verse uh, 32. But let me go back to verse 31 and uh, read through to the end of the chapter. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Well, our text is verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And sometimes when we uh, look at Scripture uh, in a sermon, we sometimes will take half a chapter or sometimes a whole chapter and look at what a passage might be saying from the vantage point of 36,000 feet uh, when you can see the terrain for miles and miles. And then sometimes, as has been the request tonight, we take a microscope, as it were, and examine just one verse and see what it has to say in all of its magnificent detail. And you'll notice uh, that Paul here in what is undoubtedly the best chapter in the Bible I once had a deacon who chastised me for saying that about Romans 8, and uh, there's always a deacon. And uh, I said to him, 
Look, you're in hospital, you've got two hours to live. Your minister has called and he wants to know which passage do you want him to read to you, Romans 8 or the first eight chapters of Chronicles, which is a list of names. And I said, the clock is ticking. And of course, every one of us would say the eighth chapter of Romans. It never fails to bring us to the very edges of Beulah land, of heaven. And here, on four different occasions, first of all in verse 31, Paul asks a question that begins with the interrogative, who, not, not what, but who. In other words, Paul has some one in mind, not some thing in mind, but some one in mind. And of course, the one he has in mind is the accuser, Satan, whose name is the accuser. If God is for us, who can be against us? Or in verse 33, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? This is one of Satan's ploys. This is one of his devices that he, he makes allegations against you. He charges you. How can you be a Christian? Look at your life. Look at the lackluster performance of your life. How can you possibly call yourself a Christian? And then Paul responds by saying, it is God who justifies. We don't justify ourselves, but it is God who justifies. And then in verse 34, another question, who is to condemn? And then in verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And it's in the context of these questions, these who questions, behind which lies the person of Satan, the accuser, the one who appears in the Garden of Eden and seduces our first parents and takes their eyes away from God and makes them look at themselves. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? If God is for us, he's quoting, I think, from Psalm 56, this one thing I know, the psalmist says, God is for me. It's a beautiful thing to be assured of, isn't it? That God is for you. He's on your side. He's in your court. He speaks on your behalf. You're a child of God. You are an heir and a joint heir with Jesus Christ. Your sins are forgiven. You have the blessing of assurance. You know that when you die, you will go to heaven. You have that assurance that Jesus gave the dying thief moments before his passing, today you will be with me in paradise. 
God is for me. In the face of trials and difficulties and obstacles, in the face of disease, to be able to look them in the face and say, this one thing I know, God is for me. How can we know that God is for us? That's the greatest question that we can ask, isn't it? There are many questions that I wish I had answers to, but the most important is that one, I think. How can I know that God is for me? This sovereign God of heaven and earth, the only God there is. This God who is holy, holy, holy. This God who is perfectly righteous, who cannot look upon sin. This God who speaks in his word and says in clear terms there is a heaven to be gained and a hell to be shunned. How can I, how can I know that God is for me? And his answer here is the gift of his own son. The answer here, he did not spare his own son. And I want to examine this answer clearly along three or four lines of thought. The first of which is that the father's love is shown in that he loved another before he loved us. He who did not spare his own son. We have to go back into eternity. We have to go back into the being of God himself who exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three distinct persons who coexist in one unity, in a fellowship, in what uh, the church fathers on the Greek side called perichoresis, and on the Latin side in the West called circumincessio, and what one early church father referred to as the dance of the Trinity. When we think about the doctrine of the Trinity, Augustine said, it is shallow enough for children to paddle in and deep enough for elephants to swim in. There are depths here, there are immensities here, that there is only one God, but there is more than one who is that one God. The Father is God, and the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. It's one of the staggering things that you encounter in the New Testament that people like John and Matthew and Luke and Paul and James and Peter, all of them Jews, all of them believing without equivocation in the oneness of God, having said a million times in the course of their lives the 
Shema of Israel, behold, the Lord your God, He is one. And yet we find these Jews now become Christians and without a hint of rejection, without a hint of controversy, they accept the deity of Jesus and bow to Him and worship Him and acknowledge Him to be as much God as the Father is God. The Father has a Son, an eternal Son, who has always been and has no beginning and no end. And each person of the Trinity has a distinguishing characteristic, a distinguishing attribute. The Father is unbegotten, and the Son is begotten, and the Holy Spirit proceeds. This is the language of Nicaea. It's the language of the Westminster Confession of Faith in chapter 2. And so, Paul takes us into eternity. He takes us into the very being of God before there was a creation, before we even think about what does God have to say to me. There was a love in the Father's heart for another, before there was a love expressed for the likes of you and me. He had a son. He loved his son with a love that is impossible to measure. It's an infinite love. It's a divine love. An only son. He only has one son. We are sons. We are adopted sons. We have sonship. We want to be so politically correct, of course, so we say sons and daughters, but that's not the language of the New Testament because it wouldn't mean anything because daughters didn't inherit in the New Testament, and therefore only sons inherit, and that's the point, that we are inheritors. We are heirs, and we are joint heirs with Jesus Christ, but Jesus Christ has always been a son. You remember at poignant moments in the incarnate life of Jesus, the Father tells him so. At the beginning of his ministry, when he is baptized by John the Baptism, a, a, a baptism of repentance, it wasn't Christian baptism, but it was a baptism expressing the need to repent. And John, you remember, was reluctant to have Jesus baptized. He felt he was unworthy to undo the, 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 the little pieces of leather on his sandals. Suffer it to be so now 
in order to fulfill all righteousness, Jesus said, because He had come to be the substitute. He had come to take our place, and He had come for a baptism of repentance, and, and that baptism of repentance was expressive of the cross that was before Him. I have a baptism with which I must be baptized. And you'll remember there was a descent of the third person of the Trinity in the form of a dove that hovered above him as a sign to John of the identity of this person. And there was a voice that spoke, and this voice spoke not so much to John, but to Jesus Himself. who must have asked the question, don't you think? How can I know that I am the Son of God? That's a very interesting question. And we must answer it within the confines of Jesus' absolute humanity, in the confines of a human mind and a human consciousness. How does He know that He is the Son of God? He didn't look like the Son of God. There were days when he woke up in the morning, and I'm sure he didn't feel like the Son of God. When he was so tired in the boat on the Sea of Galilee, and a storm is brewing, but his, his muscles and his bones ache so much with weariness and tiredness that he could not stay awake, and he falls into a deep sleep, and he must surely have thought to himself, I don't feel like the Son of God. And so, at the time of his baptism, his heavenly Father speaks directly to him, to his human mind, and to his human consciousness, and to his human affections, and says, you are my son, and I love you. And they must have been words of immense comfort to the incarnate Jesus as he begins that journey that inexorably leads to Calvary. And you'll remember just before Calvary, on a mountain of transfiguration, when He takes Peter and James and John, and again, as His body is transfigured, not, not deified, his body doesn't become divine, but something happens to his body that Luke stretches language in order to describe what happened and occurred to his body. And, and he says it, it seemed to glow like, like lightning. He is on a journey that inexorably now leads to Jerusalem. And the weightiness of it weighs upon him. And the Father speaks once again and says, You are my son, and I love you. I've always loved you. 
You've always been my son, my only begotten, my one and only son. And I love you. What a comfort that must have been to the incarnate Jesus, don't you think? I, I don't think that the human mind of Jesus has access to the divine mind of Jesus. The divine mind of Jesus knows everything, and he always knew that he was the Son, but the human mind of Jesus did not. And there were days when it was tested, severely tested. And these two epochal moments at the baptism and transfiguration were designed to inform him despite the clouds that are now gathering of his true identity and the love which the Father has for his own Son. So the Father's love is shown in the nature of the relationship between himself and his son, that there is another whom the Father has loved before he loved you and me. And then secondly, the Father's love is exhibited in the nature of the task he undertook. And you must read verse 32 as a verse that is saying, first of all, something about the Father and not the Son. The He is the Father here in this sentence. He who did not spare His own Son. It's more poignant than even John 3.16, which is also a verse about the Father. For God so loved the world that He gave his only begotten Son. Paul, I think, is quoting from the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which was the version that they would have read in Paul's day, which we call the Septuagint. And in Genesis 22, when Abraham is offering his son and his father's speaks to him and says, because you have done this and not spared your son, your only son, I will bless you. God spared Isaac. He provided a lamb in Isaac's place, but he did not spare his own Son, but freely delivered him up or gave him up. And the verb here is the verb that is used on half a dozen occasions in the Gospels when the Gospel writers are describing the events that lead up to Jesus' crucifixion. He was delivered up to the Jews. He was delivered up to Pilate. He was delivered up to Herod. He was delivered up to Judas. It's the same verb that's 
implied. He did not spare him. He did not spare the agony and the bloodshed. He did not spare the whipping and malediction. He did not spare the cross, but delivered him up, freely delivered him up for us all. The Lord has laid on him, his son, the iniquity of us all. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. The strokes were not lessened because he loved him. He was made to drink the dregs of the cup to its bitter conclusion. There was a moment, wasn't there, when Jesus asked to be spared in Gethsemane, when he marshals his disciples and takes his three closest disciples and bids them stay there, and he moves a, a stone's throw, perhaps the length of this room or something like that, and, and then you remember grief overtakes him, and it's a grief that almost kills him. There's something deathly about what happens to him in Gethsemane as he contemplates what will take place tomorrow, as Judas will betray him, as he will go through the machinations of the trial, as they will take him to Calvary and put him to death. And you remember, you remember what he said, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. And you hold your breath as you read those words. Jesus is speaking to his heavenly Father, and he's speaking, of course, as the incarnate one. He's speaking from within the confines of his human nature. He's speaking as one who has pondered his role as the Messiah throughout his life and read the narratives of the Old Testament and questioned his mother and others as to his identity. And now, as he is on the verge of Calvary, he comes to his father and he says, I don't want to do this. Is there not some other way? And you mustn't read that narrative of Gethsemane rushing on to the second part of what he said, not my will, but thy will be done. You need to pause on the first part of the sentence and take in what it is, 
that Jesus is actually asking His heavenly Father, and you must consider how much His heavenly Father must have wanted to reach down from heaven and take hold of His Son and draw Him to Himself and say, of course I spare you, because they're not worth this. What if the Father had said, what if He had spoken as He had spoken at the baptism and the transfiguration? What if a voice had said, you are my beloved Son, and I love you, and I spare you, my Son, I spare you? What if the Father had said that? And instead, there was silence. He didn't speak a word to Jesus. There was no word of reassurance. There was no voice that came and reassured him that he would be spared some of the egregiousness of the pain of crucifixion. And he must go only by the strength of the Holy Spirit to meet this role that he has taken upon himself. Who killed Jesus? Was it Judas out of love of money? Was it Pilate out of the fear of man? Was it the Jews out of envy? No, it was none of those. It was the Father who killed him out of love for you and me. And you can scarcely take that in, can you? But such is the Father's love that He did not spare His Son. I only have one Son, and I would do anything to spare Him suffering and trial and difficulty. And there's many a parent in here who can resonate with that, and you've You've gone out of your way, and maybe later you say to yourself, maybe I did too much for him. Maybe I should have spared him a little. But your heart overflowed with love and sympathy for your son or daughter in difficult circumstances, and even though those circumstances may have been brought on by themselves, you still went out of your way to help them and shelter them from the consequences of their actions. Nicholas Waltersdorf, the Christian philosopher, had a son who died 
mountain climbing somewhere in North America and fell thousands or more feet to his death. And he wrote a book about it. It's called, it's the title of his sermon, it's called Lament for the Son, His Only Son. What this tells us, I think, is so clear that there is no other way for us to be saved. Such is the holiness of God, such is the integrity of the righteousness of God that there is no other way. Someone must take the place of sinners, someone must represent sinners, someone must stand in my place. At the end of a service, we pronounce a benediction. It's God's benediction. It's His covenant blessings upon His covenant people. It reminds us that we are under the shelter of God's beneficence and covenant love and mercy. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance, His smile upon you and, and give you shalom, give you peace. But that's not what Jesus heard. The Lord curse you and damn you and cast you away. The Lord's unmitigated wrath and anger descend upon you. The Lord frown upon you and give you hell. He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. So the Father's love is shown in that he first loved another. And the Father's love is exhibited in the nature of the task that he undertook. He undertook to give his son. And the Father's love is exhibited in the certainty of the provision. He gave him up for us all. And as a consequence, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Now, I, I think it's it's justifiable for us to ask, who is the us all here? We're Presbyterians, so I think we're allowed to ask this question and, and traverse something that is, on the face of it, a little difficult. And there are brothers and sisters of ours who find what I'm about to say difficult to believe, and they're often hostile to it, but 
I want us to follow the logic of what Paul is saying here. There is something that Jesus has done that guarantees our relationship with our Heavenly Father. There is something, and we need to go back to verses 29 and 30, those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. And Paul is saying in verse 32 that there is something that the Father has provided in the gift of His Son. There is something that the Son has accomplished on the cross on our behalf that guarantees our glorification. It it doesn't just make our glorification possible on the premise that you have to do something first that it is premised upon the axiom that you and I have something called free will. No, that's not where Paul places the assurance of the gospel. Because if it were to be placed on anything relating to us, there could be no assurance because we are fickle. We love Him, we love Him not. We love Him, we love Him not. We obey one day and disobey the other. Even as Christians, we know this is true. So on what is the guarantee of our future glorification based? And it is based upon the provision that Jesus has made. He died as our representative. He died as our substitute. He died in our room and place. He died for us. And all that was necessary for sin to be forgiven was fully met with in the provision that He made. Justice was satisfied. That's the language of the Westminster Confession of Faith in chapter 8 when it speaks of the atoning work of Christ. He satisfied the demands of divine justice. Well, follow the logic for just a minute or two. If Jesus has satisfied divine justice on the behalf of those for whom He died, There is nothing that can prevent those for whom He died from making it all the way to glory. That's the logic that our forefathers, that's the logic of why the Westminster divines affirmed particular redemption, that Jesus' death actually guarantees. It doesn't just make salvation possible, but it actually guarantees our glorification. It brings us all the way home that when God pronounces that verdict of justification, that we are in a right standing with God, that all our sins 
have been dealt with by Christ. Nothing can stand in the way to bring us all the way home. How will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Well, He's used that word before. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. These trials, Christian, that you experience, these tribulations, these testings, these accusations of Satan, they're all part of God's providence to bring you all the way home. Nothing can prevent it. There's nothing Satan can do. There is no accusation that he can make. There is no trial, great or small, that can undo what Jesus has accomplished on behalf of the elect, on behalf of those whom the Father gave to Him. And therefore, there is an inexorable logic here that that which Jesus accomplished on the cross guarantees that we will be brought all the way home, that we will be glorified, that when we die, we go immediately into the presence of Christ. And on that resurrection morning, our bodies will be raised from the dead and reunited with our souls, and so shall we forever be with the Lord. You see the lavishness of the provision that our Heavenly Father gives to us. He gives the best that He has, His own Son. Thanks be to God for His indescribable gift, Scripture says. On September the 8th in 1860, the ship, uh, it was a boat, the Lady Elgin, uh, it sank on Lake Michigan. And a young student for the ministry, Edward Spencer, his name was, dove again and again into the icy waters of Lake Michigan and rescued 17 people. He was never to recover from uh, the ill health that befell him immediately afterwards. And before he could complete his studies, he died. And at his funeral, it emerged that not one of the 17 had come to thank him personally. God has given to us the greatest gift imaginable, the gift of salvation, the gift of glory, the gift of heaven, the gift of forgiveness. And it cost him his son. It cost him his son's life. And I think that we need to be sure to thank him every moment of our lives.
that not a day would dawn and we don't remind ourselves and say, as John Stott would say in that marvelous English accent of his, and he began each day with that prayer, good morning, Heavenly Father. Good morning, Jesus Christ. Good morning, Holy Spirit. And that prayer would then go on to express thanks to the Father for the provision of the Son and thanks to the Son for all that he had done as his substitute and Savior and thanks to the Holy Spirit who applied everything that Jesus accomplished and applied it to the full. So let us be thankful. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Let us pray. Father, we can't begin to fathom what it means that you did not spare your son. We cannot take it in. It is too deep for us. But we know for sure that Jesus died for us. We could not save ourselves. We could not redeem ourselves. We couldn't pay the ransom price to set us free. We could not obey the law, not in its macrocosmic detail, but we have one who has obeyed it all and never sinned, the only human being in the history of the universe who never fell short of your glory, who never transgressed, who never disobeyed. And we thank you. We thank you, Holy Spirit, for making Jesus Christ so real to us. We thank you for your witness with our spirits that we are, by faith, children of God and heirs and joint heirs with Jesus Christ. Lord, may this truth be treasured now in our hearts tonight. And for those who might be here to whom all of this is a little strange. They are searching for something, the meaning of life. And we pray that tonight, by your Spirit, you would point them to Jesus, who fulfills and who satisfies and who promises never to leave nor forsake. And hear us for Jesus' sake. Amen. Now let us... Uh